This is the current federal tax developments for the week of February the 27th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers coming here from Phoenix, which is a bit warmer than Southern California right now. I'm getting track of and the weather skewed north of us and you know, it's becoming interesting in the rest of the country. But sitting here looking at what's going on, have a little bit of clouds today, but not really that bad. Today, though, we're going to look at what's going on in taxes. And we're going to start with the fact we're going to talk about the issuance of proposed regulations related to retirement plan forfeitures and some changes made there. We also will discover that the office of, or I should say, OIRA, remember them? We talked about them in the past. They completed their review of the crypto broker proposed regulations that were added as part of the Infrastructure Act back in 2021, and they're expected to be issued shortly. And as you remember, reporting is going to be required beginning once the IRS gets final regulations out. So those are going to be hotly anticipated when those regs come out. The IRS extended deadlines uh, now, not just for one month now, but for many months uh, for taxpayers that are involved, that were involved in disasters in California, Alabama, and Georgia. Uh, they will now, instead of having to file things on May the 15th, what was basically a one month extension for individual returns and the like, and most other entity, most other like corporate returns, et cetera, that were calendar year. Now we're going to push that back to October 16th. So a much longer time to wait. And the IRS issued the final business electronic filing mandate regulations. Those that come out, we're going to talk about they were mandated, law said they would be changed, and now we're going to discover what we have to do coming forward. So let's start with this proposed regulation for retirement plan forfeitures. Now, this is regulation 122286-18. It was published in the uh, published on the 24th of February. And what it talks about is what's called forfeitures in a retirement plan. So I'm going to talk about here about a qualified retirement plan. So I'm going to talk about either a defined contribution or defined benefit plan. And what happens is in either plan, you're allowed to limit the benefits an employee can get unless they stay there a certain number of years and you have vesting percentages. So you still make contributions toward their account, but if they don't stay for the proper number of years, some percentage of whatever has been contributed by the employer or some percentage of their benefit is forfeited, meaning it's lost and gone. Now, what a plan does with that becomes a little more interesting, but the proposed regulations will deal with the effect of or the use of these forfeitures in both defined benefit and defined contribution plans. Now, a defined benefit plan is one that, as it states, what the plan tells us is what the employee is going to get as a benefit under some, you know, set of calculations, et cetera, involving that. The old traditional plans would have been some percentage of high earnings that you'll pay out for the life of the employee from the time they retired until they die. That kind of program is that. Now we got less traditional plans like the cash benefit ones are a bit different, but they're still defined benefit. We define the benefit. Defined contribution plans are those where money's put in the plan uh, by the employer or with a 401k structure by the employee that goes with it. And what the employee gets is whatever balance is left in there. In the case of a forfeiture for a defined benefit plan, obviously we had funded, some of our funding had been used 
uh, to pay for that benefit that was going to be paid in the future, this employee will never get. So we're going to talk about how you deal with that. And the other side this talks about is how we deal with the situation in a defined contribution plan where there simply is a flat dollar amount that's not going to that employee and that the plan has to deal with in some way, shape, or form. So we'll talk a little bit about how those go down. Now, one of the key things that's in here, though, for defined contribution plans, which are probably what you're going to see far more often than defined benefit plans, uh, in defined contribution plan, there now is going to be a very clear one-year rule. That is, essentially, the forfeitures have to be used within one year the following year after they're forfeited. So if the forfeiture occurs in, let's say, the 24 plan year, then you're going to have to get the forfeitures absorbed in some way, shape, or form by the end of 25. Now, the actual regulation talks about a couple of issues. It starts with defined benefit plans. Okay, this is reg, proposed reg 1.41-7a. And it must expressly now provide that forfeitures may not be applied to increase the benefits of any employee that would otherwise receive under a plan at any time prior to the termination of the plan or the complete discontinuous employer contributions. So essentially, if you freeze the plan or if you just simply terminate the plan, then you could allocate the forfeitures out to increase benefits of remaining employees. But if you're going to be doing anything else, you're not allowed to do that. But you, what you do is take those into account in determining the costs under the plan for the future. So effectively, the benefit goes to the employer. And that's kind of in line with the whole basic concept of a defined benefit plan, where essentially the, what the employees get is fixed and we're looking at the cost of the employer. Now they do say, uh, they give you a reference there in the regs to see regulations section 430, or see code section 430H1, 431C3, and 433C3 regarding the reasonable actuarial assumptions that can be used determining the amount of the contributions required to be made under a plan to which one of those sections apply. So your reasonable concept of how you would reduce future requirements, future payments into the plan. Now for defined contribution plans, the Preamble to the regs has an interesting paragraph that specifically cites a 2010 newsletter of employee plans office of the IRS tax exempt and government entities division. So, I mean, 12 years ago or 13, yeah, 13 years ago, really, almost 13 years ago, uh, came out a note that some defined contribution plan administrators have been placing forfeited amounts into a suspense account and would allow those to accumulate over several years. But the, they stated back in 2010, the code does not allow this practice. Um, and it says it's advised that a plan should have provisions telling how and when it will use or allocate plan forfeitures and describe deadlines for the use or allocation of forfeitures. To be blunt, they are going to now put a reg in to force that to be done. So previously, the IRS position was that wasn't allowed under the law, but the reg didn't specifically say you, you know, couldn't do that. So now they're going to say, well, we're going to be a little more explicit. So they tell us in Regulation 1.407-7b that your plan is going to have to say how you're going to use the forfeitures. Now, again, under the law, they can be used to play, pay, pay, pay the plan's administrative expenses uh, to essentially reduce employer contributions under the plan, so it can be treated as additional contribution, or to increase benefits in other participants' accounts in accordance with the plan terms. Now, as a practical matter for most defined, you know, for today, um, you know, with most plans being profit sharing, 401k type structures, 
I suspect reducing it, I guess employer contributions could still be done. Yeah, probably still makes sense when you got matching, etc. But you could use it for any one of the three. But now the law says hard and fast, a forfeiture must be used no later than 12 months following the close of the plan year in which the forfeiture were incurred under the plan terms. So as soon as the balance is forfeited, no longer, you know, it's going to take it away from this employee because they forfeited their balance. We have to get rid of it within one year. Now, they note in the preamble that you don't have to use all three options. You know, you, you could say, hey, every dollar of this is going to go to, play to pay plan administrative expenses. Every dollar of it's going to go to increased benefits and participant accounts under various scenarios or how you do it. But what they do say is they're warning people if you don't use all three of these, uh, the plan could have an operational failure if you can't absorb the entire amount by the end of 12 months under these regulations. So they're strongly encouraging you to be very broad in your definition of what these can be used for. In essence, you could obviously prioritize it to increasing benefits for other participants, but then you could say, if we run out of that, somebody maxes out, we can't get above the limitations, the max allocations for the employees under the plan, you know, the maximum amount the law would lay under 415, to allocate to the employee, then you know you would turn around and try to use it for administrative expenses and the like. Those would be your background. Now there is a proposed transition rule in these proposed regs that be forfeitures incurred during any plan year that began before January first of twenty twenty four would be treated as having been incurred the first plan year that begins on or after January first of twenty twenty four. That is meant to apparently give a sort of out to somebody that was still taking the suspense account approach and so had been accumulating these forfeitures over the years. Well, assuming these regs go into effect, which obviously with this date, they're planning them to go into effect, you know, to put final regs in this year. As I'd say, what they're really expecting to happen is then next year, you're going to be forced to allocate those things out. Now it is proposed to apply to plan years beginning on or after January 1st of 2024. So as they note, for an example, if you have a forfeiture, uh, that occurs in the plan year that begins in 24, you essentially have to get it 12 months after the end of that year. So if you had a calendar year plan of 24, you got till December 31st of 25 to get this allocated or used up. They also note, because again, remember, they put out a document that said that, hey, that, that, that whole suspense account thing, that's actually not allowed under the law. So if you want to, you can go ahead and use these proposed regulations in the interim uh, as the way you're going to deal with your forfeitures. And in essence, the IRS won't challenge your current structure as not being in line with the law. So they're suggesting you use it this way. That's kind of how this works. Next up, we have our friends at OIRA. Remember them? They review all regs. And remember, it was a big thing in the prior administration when they started reviewing IRS regulations as well, where they continue to do so, that has not changed. Uh, even though the prior administration left office, and it was a little bit controversial at the time, it's not been moved. And now we have the OIRA conclusion of the EO 12866 regulatory review, which is executive order review. And this is for uh, RIN 1545-BP71 uh, for the program, the regulatory program. That was issued on February 23rd. Now, as you may remember, 
the Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act that was enacted in November 2021 mandates reporting by crypto brokers. That was a requirement to happen. And it was supposed to be starting with this year effectively because they were supposed to actually be in January of next year, they would have been issuing what's effectively a 1099B for sales of cryptocurrency and the crypto brokers would be required to track basis. IRS notified us in December of last year that those rules would not begin on the January 1st, 2023. That's not when the tracking would begin, but rather it's going to be delayed until at least the final regulations come out. So we've been kind of, you know, waiting around, hoping to see these regs come down. Now, OIRA has told us, the IRS had submitted documents to them. OIRA has told us they have completed their review of the proposed regulations. So that means generally they should be issued shortly by the IRS. Now, as I said, the OIRA stuff is kind of interesting. Um, it is at the regifo.gov site. And if you go there, you'll actually find, and as I said, it will tell you not a whole lot in there. It'll tell you if, any, if they had a meeting with anybody. In this case, they report none. Uh, it does give you the regulatory project under view. It gives the fact it was treasuries and the IRS's project, um, and then has some other basic disclosures there. They received it on the 10th of January, and so getting it out here just a little over a month, not really that bad. Fairly quick turnaround for that. So. We'll see how this works out. We'll see what those regs are. But with OIRA approval, the IRS essentially now has the green light if they want to publish them. Pretty much any time from now forward, they could kick those regs out. Another announcement this week we've had, and I don't know that the snowstorms, you know, the blizzard in Southern California, ought to, that might create some fun issues. So we'll see how that goes. We've had more of these things, but we did get this week a notification on the 24th, just before the current storm started when it's going through, that the May 15th deadline is extended to August or to October 16th for disaster area taxpayers in California, Alabama, and Georgia. Initially, they had delayed the April 15th deadline to May 15th. Now you're going to go all the way to October 16th, and that will include the payments that are required by the due date, which is probably the big advantage under the program that they're going to get. So these filing deadlines that are postponed all the way back to October 16th makes it interesting. Uh, the IRS is offering relief to any area designated by FEMA in these three states as being subjected to these various disasters. They do know that there are different dates, starting dates and areas involved. And there are four different uh, declarations and the start date and other details may vary by each of those disasters. Now, as I said, given some of what's gone on this weekend, you know, with snow coming down in places, snow, lots of snow coming down, shall we say, in places where lots of snow doesn't normally come down in, we may see some more damage and issues and some more disaster declarations. So that's it. Now, the actual notice tells us, of course, the postponement until, um, you know, calendar year returns, individual returns due on April 15th, business returns only due on March 15th and April 18th, and returns on tax-exempt orgs due on May 15th, all of them will be kicked back. It also means essentially, and this will, you know, essentially, and this is also make payments. That's clear and important to note in the news release that making payments is in there. It also pushes back to October 16th, the need to make 2022 contributions to IRAs and health savings accounts. So they get the extra time to do that if they're in an affected area. 
Now, of course, you've got to double check that your client is in an affected area if you're doing this, right? Be in that case. Uh, if you're a farmer that foregoes making estimated tax payments and only file the return by March, March 1st, they're going to have till October 16th. And that's just skip the whole thing. They can wait till that and pay no pay, you know, file the return, pay any tax due and have no estimates. Uh, the October 15th also applied to the fourth quarter estimate. That was due on January 17th. You can make that skip that payment, include it with the 2022 return you filed. So as, as we would note, you are still going to be subject to underpaying of estimated taxes for the first three quarters, but quarter four will not be a problem. It also applies to 2023 estimated tax payments due on April 18th, June 15th, and September 15th. Again, these will all get delayed until October 16th. And also quarterly payroll and excise tax returns normally due on January 1st, April 30th, and July 31st. So lots of things are getting pushed back by this relief. Okay. They remind you they have a disaster assistance and emergency relief for individuals and taxpayers, tax, for individuals and business page that has details on the various things that will be extended. Uh, they indicate that they provide their filing and penalty relief to any taxpayer with an IRS address of record located in disaster areas. So again, telling you, you should not need to contact the IRS. If your client's address of record is clearly with inside, inside the disaster areas, when you go back and look at the details for each one, uh, the IRS should identify that automatically. If they don't, they tell you in the news release uh, how to contact the IRS and call the number on the notice and indicate you're covered by this because you were in the disaster area. And if you live outside the disaster area, but your records necessary to meet a deadline occurring within the postponement period are located in the affected area, they will need to contact the IRS at 866-562-5227. And as I said, this also includes workers assisting in relief activities who are affiliated with recognized government or philanthropic organizations are also involved in that. Um, they remind you that if you're in a disaster area, you've got a federally covered disaster, take a look at publication 547, casualty, deduction, casualty disasters and thefts. For information about things you can claim related to damage that may have occurred because of your property being impacted by flooding, winds, whatever in the world your disaster was. Uh, and of course, they also suggest uh, for the overall general relief packages, uh, you know, you can go to disasterassistant.gov is a place to find information about all of that. So as I said, we've now got an additional relief. And with the way some of the storms have been coming through recently, I'm going to expect we're going to have a few more places that are going to be subject to various types of relief. Now, next up, one you may not like as much as getting relief from filing until, Octo until October 16th for some of those places, we now have the IRS final electronic filing returns uh, regulations and expand the required uh, electronic filing rules. So we're going to talk about that particular issue. This is Treasury Decision 9972 issued on February the 21st. And it also then a news release issued on the 21st as well that says IRS and Treasury issue final regulations on e-file for businesses. Again, that's news release IR 2023-31. Now, the final regulations will generally apply to returns required to be filed in 2024. Now, note what that really means is it's going to apply to 23 filings because you file those in 2024. So by the wording, it seems like, yeah, 
for next January, you're going to have a lot more returns that have to be filed electronically. Clients will no longer be able to qualify for a small taxpayer exception for most of these forms. Or I'll put it this way, small taxpayer exceptions are going to be so down there in the small taxpayer range that most of your clients aren't going to qualify for this. So greatly reduces levels. We'll talk about what those reductions are, but either they get rid of a small taxpayer exception entirely, or they make it far more difficult to qualify for. Okay, now, as I said, some of the things they do here, it affects partnership returns, corporate income tax returns, unrelated business income tax returns, 99T, the 990T, I should say, uh, withholding tax returns, information returns to 99, registration statements, disclosure statements, notifications, actuarial reports, and some excise returns. They reflect changes made by the Taxpayer First Act to increase e-filing and without, in Congress's words, undue hardship to taxpayers. Now, some of the things that they are that the news release points out are in these final regs. Uh, the term 50 return threshold enacted in prior regulations to require electronic filing by filers of 10 or more returns a calendar year. Uh, you know, we're going to reduce that down to just being 10. And the final regulations all create new regulations requiring e-file certain returns other documents previously not required to be e-filed. It's going to broaden out dramatically what you have to file electronically. It requires you to aggregate almost all information returns types covered by the regulation to determine whether you meet the 10 return threshold. So it's going to be very difficult to miss that. You know, if you have, you know, you can't just 250 by type, but if you have 250 information returns in total, or I should say 10, you're going to be required to file this electronically. Right? Earlier regulations that applied to 250, much higher limitation, separately to each type of information return covered by the regulations. Now, of course, we don't have that. You're going to eliminate the e-filing exception for income tax returns of corporations that report assets of under $10 million at the end of their taxable year. They will be required to file electronically and require partnerships with more than 100 partners to e-file their information returns and require partnerships to file at least 10 returns of any type during a calendar year to e-file their partnership return. So yeah, we're going to have a couple of, uh, a couple of issues there that we'll get into that. So partnerships will be doing a lot more e-filing as well. Uh, they remind you they did create a free online portal for 1099s that was kind of the predecessor to this. So you may want to see how that works. Some people that tried it found a little quirks here at the end. Uh, whether you'll consider that worth the bother or you'll just be, you know, or you just have clients use a third-party source for doing it. That'll be a different question. And the IRS tells us about all the wonders they've had of increasing E2B filing. Uh, you know, and they received nearly 40 million paper returns last year, even though 99% are e-filed. So the theory is this just gets rid of the final 1%. I expect that's probably correct because I suspect a lot of people were electronically, still electronically filing because let's face it, for most of us, that's simply become easier. Uh, doing the, you know, filing 1099s by doing the paper forms was always loads of fun, especially, you know, when you were lining up that wonderful red print. Uh, you know, the red print version, getting that lined up in a printer, that was always kind of a pain. So I'm sure a lot of people have stopped doing it by now. Uh, there are still some hardship waivers for e-filers who experience hardship in complying with e-filing requirements. Administrative exception from e-filing requirements promote efficient, effective and efficient tax administration. What they didn't do, though, in the regulations is provide blanket exceptions. There were some people that were looking for blanket exceptions for certain people in certain locales, certain conditions. It was like, no, it's not automatic 
that you're going to get it. It's going to be based on a IRS, you know, you ask the IRS. And yes, that's intentional because the IRS is going to make it kind of a pain to get a waiver. So that's going to encourage you to decide that maybe you really do, you know, even though you claim you have no access to a computer, maybe you do figure that maybe, you know, like your grandkid or your son or daughter, granddaughter, whoever, uh, you know, who definitely has a computer that they could probably handle the filing, you know, getting it into wherever you need it to be filed, or you could hire a third party to do it. So that's how this one goes. Well, this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for this week of February 27th, 2023. As always, Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Capital Financial Education and by uh, your State Society of CPAs. If you are participating in the discussion groups uh, for the Connect groups for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, Washington, you can post something there, I may respond. Also, I've tried to take a look at what goes on in Idaho's discussion board. They have up and available. Also, you can email me, edzollers at currentprotectionalmost.com. Uh, it's always a little more iffy there because, of course, this time of year, I'm somewhat busy with tax returns, especially because staffing for us, as probably for everybody, has become a lot more interesting this year. So we're working on what we can. But in any event, hopefully we'll talk to you next week as we enter the month of March and heading toward our first deadline right? March 15th, right? The pass-through entities deadlines and all that kind of fun stuff. And for those of you in pass-through entity tax states, that also means that you probably have to make sure that, you know, if your client fouled up and didn't get all those estimates paid, which is going to foul up their deduction, but you have to get those taken care of too. That ought to be fun. So in any event, we'll see you next week here on Current Federal Tax Developments.